Hey everyone, welcome to A Live for Thursday, March 4th, 2021. My name is Bob Roberts, I'm with Civil Air Patrol, and tonight we are joined by Chris Palmer. Now, over the last few months, we have had several of our guest pilots talking about how much Alaska is their pilot bucket list location. Now, tonight, we are going to dive into Alaska. I figured that was a great way to uh, talk about Alaska. Now, Chris is a CFI out of Homer, Alaska. He runs a really well done ground school called Angle of Attack, which I'm gonna put a link to down below. And he has a YouTube channel with the same name. Also gonna have a link to that down below. Hey, welcome to the show, Chris. Great to be here, thanks for having me. Man, you really have enjoyed um, you know, watching your videos up on YouTube. Um, I haven't had a chance yet to look at your ground school, um, but I'm excited to see that as well. You know, um, you know, in the past, a couple of questions to kind of kick us off. Um, I wanted to talk about Alaska. Like I mentioned when we first started that we've had a couple of really cool guests on in the last two months or so. And a really funny overarching thing that a lot of them have said. And this is everybody from general aviation pilots to military pilots to uh, commercial pilots um, all across the board. And I always ask the question, I'm like, you know, uh, you know, money, no object, you know, what's your dream, you know, flight trip. And man, I've had like more than three quarters of them have said Alaska, uh, which is so cool. So, um, what now you have been in Alaska for about the last 10 years. What is it about Alaska that makes pilots just heart go soft? Why do we want to all come to you? Well, I, I, it kind of reminds me of the gift shops you'll see as soon as you get here, right? So you go into the gift shops. One of our mantras in Alaska is the last frontier. So I think in a lot of ways, pilots have that same mentality that Alaska is still this, this very wild place. And there are so many even aviation frontiers that are still so fresh here. Uh, off airport flying is, is very common here, whether it be float flying or landing on gravel bars or beaches. That's just kind of a normal day of of recreational and even professional aviation life here. So I, I think that's the core reason that pilots want to fly here is it is this untapped adventure and, and kind of seems like the lower 48 is conquered mm -hmm. if you want to say it that way. And this seems like one place you can go and do something new and different, maybe land somewhere that someone's maybe never landed before. I think that's part of the draw that uh, that people want that on their on their bucket list and in their logbook. Now, now, if, if now for the pilots that are listening to this and they let's say they wanted to fly to Alaska as part of their bucket list. Now, all the places that you've flown to Alaska, what would be like, let's say I'm going to come to Alaska and I get one, you know, one trip in my lifetime right in Alaska. What would be like the best place? To fly. I know that's so okay. subjective, but <laughs> what would be the place yeah, I'd mean, want to go to? There, there's a lot of variety. I think, uh, I think you can get um, kind of the area I'm in, which is more the fishing territory. So, mm -hmm. do you want to mix some fishing in with your flying? That could be a lot of fun. Then there's up in Talkeetna near Denali, where you can see North America's largest mountain there, mm -hmm. um, second largest mountain in the world. So. That's a beautiful place as well. That's where I did my float rating, and and that kind of comes in the conversation. I'll probably end with that on this particular question. And then, you know, you get up into the the interior where you can get into some really remote territory, uh, especially above Fairbanks into the Arctic Circle where 
not a lot of people have flown up there and it's still just vast and hardly any airports and you you do feel alone so you know i went on a trip there several years ago now and it's the first and only time i've been up past the arctic circle or rather into it and um it's very strange to leave an airport and not see any sign of human life like a road a house or anything for hours i feel like even in in like the western us and some of the desert areas where there's not a lot of population you still get the occasional road or water tower some sign of life but there's just nothing and it, it's this odd feeling that i'd never had before and then you go and you land in this actually pretty large runway but uh we went to Bettles, alaska if you guys want to look that up papa mm -hmm. alpha bravo tango if you want to look it up in four flight um pretty big runway very wide runway because they have to fly the fuel into there but this is a town that um that kind of threw me for a loop. I mean, we were, we had no communication with the outside world. They had dial up internet in the office. Uh, you know, there's, there's just aviation all around. That's, that's how everything happens there. There is no road access to the town. They have, they have an ice road that is open for a week sometimes in the winter and that's how they'll get their vehicles to town. But other than that, that's, that's like the only access this place has to the outside world. But this is this, this is a similar story with a lot of Alaska. So even in this quote unquote populated or, or city, uh, in Bettles as just one example, this is actually an example all over Alaska where we have communities and villages. A lot of people call them or speckled around and aviation is just a way of life. It's how it connects all of us. Now that's not necessarily an experience someone will get if they come to Alaska and and just visit here i realize that time is short maybe you're bringing your family but i would definitely say there are places where you can go up for a day whether you're the pilot or not and experience aviation in alaska i i do i'll do flights with people at my flight school here so if they want to do a little bit of mountain flying and, and just kind of have a scenic flight as a pilot i can do that myself but there are things like going out on floats to go see bears uh, coastal brown bears, that's the main industry here in the summertime tourism industry here in Homer. There's uh, all the, the mountain tours up in Talkeetna. There's the fly out fishing and hunting that is prevalent around Alaska. So you you probably won't get to fly the plane in those situations where you're kind of doing, doing the tourism thing, but you still get to see a side of aviation that's just, you know, mind boggling and still really neat to see as a pilot. Um, and then if you want to go a step further, going back to the float rating, a float rating is an add-on rating. So you don't have to do a very extensive oral uh, check ride for it. And and even the check ride itself is abbreviated. So you're basically demonstrating your taxi, docking, takeoff, and landing skills. And that's it. Everything else you've already demonstrated, stalls and, and those sort of things. So people can typically get that done in two to three days. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, there's a number of outfits that do it here. And that's something that a lot of pilots have on their bucket list and it's easy to accomplish in a vacation where it's actually, you know, that ends up being on your license as a, as a rated or certificated, uh, seaplane pilot. That's pretty sweet. Now I, I know that a lot of pilots, we like to have missions, right? Um, you know, mm -hmm. as opposed to just flying a, you know, in a square rectangular pattern around an airport all day long. Um, and it almost seems like it would be kind of neat is if you gave yourself, you know, a week, right? And you said, you know, hey, listen, you know, you, somebody called you up over angle attack and 
Uh, and now is that actually is that actually the name of your um, your flight school as well? Yeah, it is. Yeah, cool. everything's angle of attack. Sweet. And my URL, by the way, angleofattack.com. I scored that at some point. Man, that's a lucky grab. Somebody didn't grab that out of you. I charge you two it million dollars. It took me for about it. ten years to get it, but yeah, I I uh, I got it finally. Well, that was probably a happy, exciting day when you finally saw it come up. <laughs> so, yep, it was. Yeah. Um, it almost seems like it'd be a fun idea because I noticed you mentioned like the mountains. Um, you know, you know, in the U.S., right? We we look at like you know Mount Rainier, which is near Seattle, Washington, something like that. But the mountains you have are taller than that. Um, so so it almost seems like it'd be fun. It'd be a fun week to spend a couple of days for the float plane, and then also spend some time with you. You know, and then maybe right. do some mountain flying. Um, you know, and yeah, get to enjoy really Alaska. I had a yeah, I, I had a, a a guy that stands out just as a quick story there where he went up and did a bush flying course with Alaska Floats and Skis in Talkeetna, who's a a popular off-airport float plane flight school up there. And then after that, he came down here just to see my area and get some get some flying time there. I ended up spending a little bit more time with him. I think we flew around for two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, my area is a little bit unique. So, you know, he got the big mountain up there and he got the... I'm not sure if he did float flying or or just gravel bar sort of stuff. But when he went with me, we flew around coastal Alaska. And mm-hmm. what's really interesting about the terrain here, which I really can't the, – the only place I can really see this being similar would be maybe the Oregon coast or the, or, or the Washington coast where the mountains literally rise up out of the ocean mm-hmm. and they go from sea level up to 5,000 feet. And it, it's just breathtaking. Mm-hmm. Um but mixed along with that are glaciers and ice fields and bright blue pools of water and, you know, a, a wilderness that's not too far away from our home airport. But, it, you know, it's just it's amazing. And you get to hold on to the controls and you are the one that gets to fly and we can say, hey, that looks cool. Let's go over and check that out or let's do a couple laps. Let's get some pictures right here. So I, I really uh, I actually really encourage people that are visiting Alaska because I feel like it's kind of on everyone's bucket list, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the the wife wants to come, the the mom wants to come, the kids want to come. Everyone has their reason to want to come to Alaska. Mm-hmm. But for the pilots, take a little bit of time, take a little bit of effort and find something to fly with. You will not regret just taking one little flight. You could probably call just about any flight school and do it. Um, and, and, and get to fly yourself around some glaciers, you know, you're going to have a CFI with you for mm-hmm. insurance reasons or whatever, but yeah, absolutely. It's something people should do. Now, did you end up, have you gotten your float type rating? Your float yeah. So I did it last summer. Um, we're actually working on the YouTube videos for it right now to release the whole series of them. I'm not going to be able to show my check ride, but I'm going to show mm-hmm. a lot of the training I went through. And it, it's interesting because I waited I waited until I had my commercial rating to do it, um, and it, it's been several several years now since. But when you when you do a float add-on rating to your private pilot, uh, and you become a commercial pilot, you have to do it again. But oh, okay. once I was a commercial pilot, uh, you just add on your commercial pilot or commercial uh, aircraft single engine C, so ASES. And so yeah, I did it last summer. It was three days. It was June. Um, the last week of June and it was, you know, bright, maybe not bright, but basically it was light all day long, uh, long, long days, beautiful weather, um, lush and green. People don't imagine Alaska being this green, mm-hmm. you know, wilderness, but it's just, it's beautiful in the summertime because of all the sunlight. So, 
just a magical time of year, a really fun time doing my float reading and, and just a new and different challenge and, and something that maybe I'll be able to uh, uh, dip my toes in the water a little bit more in the future. Yeah, and you've got a 172. Can you put floats on the 172? Or would you have to get I a would not plane? dare put floats on this 172, yeah, right. <laughs> but I the first float plane I flew was a 172M okay. model and it had floats on it, but uh eh, they're they're not really made for it. It can be done. Yeah, but, it doesn't seem like it would have enough power um, for you know for yeah. the drag of a float. Yeah, that's kind of the issue. And mine has, I have a 63 172, so it's only 145 horse. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's like big no, no, we're not, mm -hmm. we're not doing seaplane ratings in that thing. How hard is it? I, you know, one of the things I've always thought about with, with float planes, I've always thought like, okay, if I had to, I could get that flow plane onto the water. I feel pretty good about that. I feel pretty good. Like I could get the flow plane off the, you know, off the water. My problem is I've, I've never been a boater, right? And so I really worry about like, I'm going to like run this thing right off onto a dock and like everyone on YouTube is going to laugh at me. Someone's going to be there videotaping me as I crash into this dock. <laughs> How hard yep. is it to steer the plane once you're, um, you know, in the water? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny because I was just reviewing the footage for this uh, while we're editing and, and I say the exact same thing to my instructor. I say, Hey, you know, I've flown with some friends and float planes and, you know, I've done some takeoffs and landings. I think I understand a lot of the concepts, but I have no idea how these bush pilots dock these planes. Cause it's just amazing. It, it, it's this weird process. Cause most of these pilots that are flying these planes are flying alone. So they're in charge of, of the whole process. Right. Um, so they'll go and they'll take, let's just say it's a two Oh six. They'll go, they they'll take five passengers. They'll go over and see some bears. They'll come back. Um, you know, many, many times I've seen the bush pilots pulling up to the dock in heavy winds and they have to, they have to time it just right where they aim the plane at the dock at the right angle. They have to shut off the engine. They have to get out of the plane on the float and then they have to <laughs> jump onto the dock and grab the rope and tie off the plane. It's this whole song and dance. It's that's <laughs> the most impressive part of float flying. So it's funny you say that. And, uh, yeah, it, it, that part for me is tricky too. Cause I'm not really a boater, but mm -hmm. I think like my instructor said, it just takes time. It takes practice and eventually you get used to the pretty much like anything else in aviation is, is kind of the, um, energy of the airplane and how it's going to move into the dock. I think the very first time I would try something like you just said, I'd probably, you know, one foot would probably slip on the airplane when I'm getting onto the float. And then I would probably slip and fall on the dock as I'm trying to like get out of the dock. <laughs> and then, and then as I'm falling, I would probably try to catch myself. I put my hands down. I would let go of the rope of the airplane and then the airplane would be yep. in the middle of the lake and I'd have to swim in 32 degree water <laughs> to go get the airplane. I know. Well, okay. Well, there's another story. Cause when I, the first time I flew on a float plane, actually the first time I went and saw bears, I flew on a float plane with the guy and he didn't tie it off correctly. And it was out in the middle of the water uh, and he had to <laughs> swim out there and, and grab it. It was, it was pretty bad, but yeah, you know, it, actually the hardest part for me is just getting out of the plane. It's like, there's all these things in the way and you have to do it quickly. So really, honestly, you have to be committed. You almost have to be committed to pain. If you're going to get out of the plane, you're just going to knock a knee and get out as fast as you can. <laughs> But then, you know, eventually you see the, the bush pilots doing it and they just, it's one fluid motion. They yeah. make it look graceful and, you know, you hear a symphony playing in the background and everything and they just tie it off like it's nothing. But that's not me yet. I, I'm, I'm I have gonna... a seaplane rating, but I'm not, 
I, I wouldn't say I'm a seaplane pilot even. I'm going to show up with like a full football, you know, gear on. Yeah. Uh, just so I get out of the airplane, I can make a dive for the dock. Yep. Yep. With your life vest. With the life vest so over top. <laughs> Perfect. I, I like the visuals. Um, yep. All right. So, you know, um, the other th so what you did say summer, when do you, when would be a good time? So if pilots are thinking about, you know, Hey, listen, I'm gonna do this bucket list. What's the, what do you think is the best time? Well, one, you got to worry about weather, right? Because I mean, last, uh. you know, is the weather as bad as they make it look like on TV? I mean, you had that, what was that show, uh, flying wild Alaska or something like that? Yeah. You know, they make it I look think, like they have yeah. 80 mile per hour, you know, tornadoes rolling through uh, all the time. And well, I mean, so, so let's put everything in context. Okay. Because, um, that show was shot on the West coast mm -hmm. on the, on the Bering sea. Um, and it, it's flat. It's pretty flat out there. If you look at the charts, there's actually not a lot of mountains from Denali over that direction. So it just flows the right through. Range. So it really is quite windy on the coast over there. So they are dealing with that a lot. Um, and then in my area, we deal a lot with marginal VFR, but it, it seems like in the summertime, we, we find gaps in the weather and can make it work. Mm -hmm. Even on a pretty crummy day, uh, we can get up and we can see some stuff. The days where, and there are more of them, the days where it's clear, in the summer, it's just, you know, it's the best, it's the best type of flying there is. It's beautiful blue skies. It's, it's a uh, light most of the day from like 3 a.m. until 12 a.m., you mm -hmm. know, and you, you just, you play so hard and you fly so hard and there's just nothing like it. You know, us Alaskans, we live for summer. We, mm -hmm. we kind of hunker down and hibernate in the winter and, there's not a lot going on, but in the summer we go hard, whether that's hard work or hard play. And there's definitely a, a lot of, uh, a lot of flying. And the, the neat thing about that is you open up a lot of different opportunities that maybe you couldn't do otherwise where, you know, cross countries and camping and it just, I don't know, it, it's the perfect combination. So I'm sure people are, are seeing a lot of that on social media too. Mm -hmm. And that kind of adds to the whole last frontier flying thing, but there's just nothing like it. I, you, you, you really can't compare it to anywhere else. I, I think maybe I could compare the seaplane flying to Maine, mm -hmm. but Maine doesn't have the sort of light we have in the summer or the mountains that we have. So just nowhere like it in the U.S. It's very unique. Yeah, you know, I also, you know, people think that you guys get just a million pounds of snow and you guys definitely do get a lot of snow. But, uh, but I took a look today because I, I grew up in Rochester, New York, in Buffalo and Rochester, New York. And uh, and we always used to tell folks that, you know, that snow belt right there between, underneath Toronto, uh, Canada, we get more snow than anybody else in the U.S. And so we always had that saying. And so today I wanted to just take, take a look and I, I wanted to say, okay, it, do we really have the most snow or is it just a, a BS saying that we have? <laughs> and I went and took a look and we do have you beat. So they said the average snowfall in, uh, in Homer, Alaska is 72 inches a year. Uh, now for people that live like, you know, where I'm living now in South Carolina, 72 inches a year would be like Armageddon, but, um, but, uh, <laughs> Rochester, New York averages 89 inches a year. So, so, um, so we're used to snow where I, where I'm used to flying, but your snow, it, because it's a lot colder, right? So, but how, how is your summers? So if I'm going to come up and fly in the summer, uh, or somebody's going to come up and fly in the summer. How are your summers? Are they are they pretty temperate? Yeah. So, so Homer specifically, and even like like a five mile radius around Homer, maybe ten. But anyway, terrain based. Um, 
because of the ocean where we are, it actually keeps our climate temperate. So cool. in the winter, it's not as cold because of the war- warm water, mm-hmm. uh, the warmer current that's coming up. In the summer, we aren't as warm as other places. So in the summers, we'll get up to 65, 70 degrees is the top. You have really nice humidity. It feels perfectly comfortable mm-hmm. and just like, you know, it's the perfect temperature. And in the wintertime, we kind of hover right around freezing. Mm-hmm. Uh, which makes the roads really icy all the time because it's like 34, 32, oh, 30, yeah. 34, 32. So you pack on this ice. Um, whereas you go five miles outside of town, up the hill, away from the water, and then you're getting the snowfall. Then you're getting the low temperatures. So it's weird. We're in this little pocket here where it's pretty temperate. Um, and then, you know, let's do the other extreme of Alaska and, and, and talk about like Fairbanks mm-hmm. populated extreme. And you'll get negative 40 there in the winter oh. and then positive 90 in the summer. Yep. Like that's not uncommon there. So it's pretty dang nice up here in the summer. I mean, it, it's, it, I think it surprises a lot of people. I think it exhausts a lot of tourists because they don't fully plan for that. They just, there's all the time in the world and all the daylight to keep doing fun stuff. So mm-hmm. people leave here exhausted, but. Um, it does make for a good uh, vacation spot in the summer for sure. Well, that sounds good to me, man. Cause you know, um, we moved down South now to South Carolina uh, a couple years back and you know, you get the hundred degrees plus, you know, the, and that's not even that mm-hmm. bad. Right. But it's that humidity plus the, it's like your body just can't stop sweating, you know, and it's nasty yep. and disgusting. Um, I, you know, I could go into an air conditioned mall and I'm still sweating for three hours, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I hear you. But, uh, but that sounds like a nice vacation. That sounds like, you know, you get out of that hundred degrees and, you know, go, go up to Alaska, do some flying. It's, you know, 70 degrees, 60 degrees. That sounds like an absolutely awesome way to spend, and you know, plenty a week of or two. daylight and bush plains and mountains and glaciers and yep. fish if you want to. So yeah, this, this message brought to you by the Alaska tourism <laughs> department. <laughs> well, we're going to send them a bill later. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, and listen, that's exactly what this, uh, what this uh, video is for. They, um, you know, we've had so many people talking about Alaska, um, you know, and yep. I'm like, you know, let's talk about Alaska. Um, Absolutely. N- now you mentioned about the marginal VFR. Now what, what's causing that where you are? Is that because of the, the uh, humidity coming off the water and you get uh, a close, you know, dew point temperature spread and it's causing a lot of fog or, or what's causing that, that marginal? Mm, I would say it's probably, it's mostly just the, I would say it's the mix of things. And so if I'm going to look at things on a larger view, it's because there is, let's use a winter example. Mm -hmm. It's because there is colder weather to the north of us. And we are at the boundary of that warm air and cold air uh, where, you know, the ocean is, is warming up the air and causing this kind of pocket to always hang around here. And then, uh, and then, you know, it's butting up against that cold air. So I think that, that differential is what causes this coastline to just have more weather than even the town that's 50 miles to the north of us. Mm-hmm. You know, we, you, you can fly the coastline with fairly marginal VFR for just 10 miles and then suddenly it's clear skies. Like it's that sort of predominant climate. Um, and then the opposite, you know, during the summer, you get the warmer temperatures up there and the cooler temperatures down there, down here because of the water. So, then that can cause some things. So, and then it depends on winds and, and pressures, you know, how it is. We, we, you know, we could go crazy about that. But um, the cool thing is, is that right here in the bay where I'm at, 
we get some pretty good we get a pretty good pocket of weather just for a little local flight and so if if there's just a a a, a simple flight people want to do to see the coast and see some mountains it's pretty easy to do it's when you want to do a cross country or go mm -hmm. across the the cook inlet if people are looking at a map where it becomes a little bit more tricky because that's where you start to to run into the ifr and and the inability to move back and forth yeah i'll take a look at that because actually um uh my youngest daughter and me um she's been flying with me for you know since she was a little little kid um not as young as your kids um uh, <laughs> um but um she's been flying with me a pretty long time and we've actually talked about you know the two of us coming up you know going up the together as a father daughter mm -hmm. you know a little trip uh maybe possibly flying like say a 1e2 you know over to seattle mm -hmm. and then flying along um you know the coast the coastline up to uh, alaska um be a really long flight <laughs> but um yes. but it sounds like that might be a lot of fun as long as we don't have icing issues um all right so probably now, not in the summer but mm -hmm. you are going to deal with marginal vfr during a lot of that coastal route i'm actually planning a flight right now i'm going to be leaving sunday maybe mm -hmm. to oshkosh to take the plane for upgrades oh that's cool and and we're going in the interior so i have all of that flight planning best routes in mind right now and and uh, the interior has better weather, but um, during the summer with clear weather, I definitely want to try that trip sometime along the coast. Now, we're, now, why are you going to Oshkosh? What are you having done? So I'm having the plane upgraded to IFR. Oh, that's there. sweet. So just, yeah, should be good. Kind of the wrong time of year, you know. It, it It's not that I read the calendar wrong. <laughs> not, not trying to go down there for a big show, but uh, yeah, there's just a, a good avionics shop down there, and I have a friend that works there. We have some kind of a good deal going so that's the plan i'm going to try to conquer canada here in the next week well that'll be fun because you so see if your, your aircraft's not ifr today um you're going to take it to be ifr you'll be doing a lot yep. of mountain flying um if you're going over the yep. you know through the inland of, of canada so that'll be really sure pretty. Am, yeah it's quite the trip yeah you, we're still in the winter too you know that right <laughs> so. i do that is why we have our negative 20 degree down bags and all the survival <laughs> gear good. and <laughs> and I, I'm calling ahead to every little town and asking about hangar space. And so, yeah, it's, and it's I have, a thing for sure. I have friends in search and rescue uh, along in Canada as well. So let me know <laughs> where your route is. Okay. Well, and uh, are you coming by yourself or are you, them, is you bring you know, in the wife or the kids or a friend? Are you, how are you doing the flight? So, yeah, I'm going with a friend. Um, he's actually the guy that owns the airplane now, but I'm, I'm trying to buy it from him mm -hmm. and upgrade it. Uh, and just for safety reasons, and because we want to get through Canada fa as fast as we can, um, I want to take him along for safety reasons so that we can split the load and and not get too fatigued by the end of the day. If I do that by myself, especially after four days, I'm going to get really tired, right. fatigued, goofy, start to make bad decisions, and I don't really want to be in that position. I want to get down there efficiently and quickly and and do so safely. Yeah, even for pilots, you know, if you, if you fly enough, depending on where you're flying – you know, it's like at some point you want to get out of the airplane or stop flying. And so it's so helpful just to have somebody else, you know, take over. Um, last time yeah, I went that to doesn't make sense for new pilots, right? They all think, oh man, I, there's never going to be a time yeah, I'm right. going to get bored of flying there. There is, and there's going to be a time it's too tiring. And, and yeah, so that, you know, we're planning ahead for that. I'm safe checklist to make mm -hmm. sure that, that everything's good. Yeah. I remember there was one time we had a flight, um, we had communications issues in an area and we had to put a radio uh, repeater inside the airplane um, mm -hmm. so that people on the ground can talk to each other with their radios. 
and we flew basically a holding pattern for five and a half hours. Oh, wow. And it was like, oh. <laughs> there was no yeah. automation, no autopilot, so you had to hand fly it for five and a half hours. And we just. That is not on my aviation bucket list, by <laughs> no, the way. No, it is not. Um, yeah, so when pilots, you know, if we get the student pilots who say, there's nothing I wouldn't want to do, I'm like, give it time. <laughs> there's, there's things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, you'll learn. <laughs> um, all right. So now we talked about Alaska a little bit. So I want to actually talk about you, right? So you're doing what we all want to do for our bucket list. What's your bucket list? Like, what do you like? Um, you know, what would you like to do? What kind of airplane? Where would you want to go? Mm. Well, people ask me my favorite airplane. It's it's the 172 right now. It's just mm -hmm. I appreciate the heck out of the thing. Why do it's you? Why why is the 172? What maybe over like you know something else? I I think it's just it's because I'm so familiar with it by now, and I, I feel like a lot of the mission that I usually do it fits. So mm -hmm. whether that be instruction or flying with my small family, it it fits pretty well. Mm -hmm. Um, the thing for me like people people look at me and they see this Alaskan pilot and they see me instructing, they see the mountains, they see the beaches, they see the wilderness. And, and sometimes there's this, this perception that like I'm a bush pilot and I'm not, I, I just mm -hmm. disclaimer, I'm not that like that title is earned. And even the people that earn it, maybe not even, you know, humbly want to wear that title. So, uh, I have a lot to learn in that regard, and I, I really love the off-airport flying that I have done. So I think if there was a recreational side of my flying, and there's, there, there is and there isn't that right now. Most of what the flying I do is for my profession, which is as a flight instructor. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I do some fun stuff with my family in the plane, but if I was to be just straight recreational, I would want a Super Cub, and mm -hmm. I'd want it on big wheels or floats, and I want to go camping in the wilderness. That's yep. That's like my bucket list. Now, even for me, even though I'm on the doorstep, that's that's something that I haven't been able to do a lot yet. Uh, I have flown with friends, and they've been nice enough to let me fly their planes as well with them in the plane. So that's kind of my next step. But, you know, I'm running a flight school. I, I run on a certain income, and uh, yeah, right. I haven't quite done that yet. But that is my bucket list. I'd love to get more into the the off airport wilderness family. I think even like going philosophically, I'd like to, I'd like to offer the opportunities for my boys to just be in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And I love the idea of taking a float plane to one of these, you know, park service cabins in the middle of nowhere and, and just listening to nothing for a few days and skipping rocks. You know, I think there's a mm -hmm. lot of value and stuff like that. Yeah, just to be able to unplug from everything. Um, you know, yep. it's funny you talk about, you know, all the technology, right, to make an airplane fly, you know, to uh, to this marvel that we've only had for a little over 100 years now, uh, you know, in the history of mankind. And one of the things that that marvel of engineering and technology can allow us to do is to get away from engineering and technology. Isn't that weird? So Yeah, I've never I've never heard that perspective before. That's so true. And and Number one, number one uh, part of the aviation industry, airlines, that is their purpose, mm -hmm. is to help people travel somewhere. It, it's to help the Alaskans go to Hawaii in the wintertime, you know what I mean? Or, <laughs> right. or people go see their parents. It, it, you know, that, that, yeah, that's a cool way of looking at it. Now, now, what's um, before we get into some of the other stuff here? So, uh, before we leave Alaska, having been a pilot in Alaska now for so long, and in, 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 you know, having your own your own school. 
what's what's some like if you get pilots that come up there let's say they've already got their pilot's license you know you got 500,000 2,000 hour pilots and they show up but their hours are all like mine right I'm flying mm-hmm. instrument approaches and in, you know I, I don't care you know I'm listening to air traffic control and you know I'm doing I'm flying all that way not really flying VFR per se, um, you know, and so the flying is relatively boring, you know, I mean, if it's going right, <laughs> it's boring. Mm-hmm. Um, should be, yeah. it should be, you hope it's not too exciting, uh, especially for people in the back. And, um, and so, um, you know, you know, dropping a, an, air, an airplane engine like that 777 just did out of the sky. Oh, gosh. Uh, Crazy. <laughs> could you imagine? Uh, you're looking up his engine. Anyways, um, so, so the pilots that come to you have a little bit of experience. Um, what's some of the stuff that they should really learn about before they go and, you know, they might get in trouble with because it's, it's something that's a little different than the kind of flying they're used to doing in say the lower 48. So, uh, and I'm going to take your question in the context of, of them going from flying down there in to flat areas, essentially yeah. just getting in a plane by themselves here, because there, I think there is a gap there that is filled by educators, you know, instructors mm-hmm. and things. Um, but yeah, that, you know, and, and I went through this, this process myself because I was a lower 48 pilot. I, I learned to fly in Utah. I did my, uh, my private rating and my instrument rating there. And that's where I did a lot of my flight time. And then I came up here and I, I say that I, I relearned to fly, but it's not necessarily true. I just learned the differences and weather is, is just a big thing here. Even if you go in the four flight and you look at the imagery that's available for the lower 48 versus Alaska, it's amazing the lack of tools that we have here. Mm -hmm. Now there's a tool that we do have that is very helpful and that is weather cameras. The only other state that does it uh, to a lesser extent is Colorado, but we have a gigant, like a, a pretty, I would say probably 300 cameras, a, a large network of cameras placed in strategic air, uh, airports, locations, um, even in the middle of nowhere, like mountain passes and things that are common for pilots that, that help us actually just see the weather mm-hmm. so that, that pilots can, can fly through there. And so that has a lot to do with the marginal VFR and icing. If you were to do IFR, that's the reason people do marginal VFR around here a lot of the time is because uh, icing is kind of a thing year round in a lot of cases. Um, so we just have a big lack of tools here. Uh, you know, you'll find a you'll find a twenty thousand hour bush pilot that has a lot of experience. And granted, at some point they had to get um, l- let's call them a recreational pilot. Okay, they fly mm-hmm. for fun. They've got twenty thousand hours, and uh, which is a lot of recreational flying, sure. by the way, but. They, they won't have an instrument rating after all these years because there's no point in Alaska with the type of flying they're doing and because of the weather. So, you know, they're flying a super cub. They're flying low. They're mm-hmm. carrying loads back and forth to their cabin or they're they're just going and landing on on beaches and things. And I have to say, I have to say that like the latter thing, I think, is more of a recent last five years, maybe last 10 years thing with with the aviation industry, with the cub crafters and a bunch of YouTubers, mm-hmm. people showing the backcountry side of flying. Um, you know, before that, like super cubs were used to do work. They are they're a workhorse sort of airplane where they're carrying the meat out of a hunt or they're they're carrying supplies to someone's cabins. Um, and so there, there's this whole work side to these airplanes that really is the story of Alaska rather than the recreational side. 
Um, so once you start, once you get past the weather thing, one thing that was pretty strange for me was, was the type of airports that we fly at here. So we have here in town, we have just a, a perfectly fine airport. It's just, you know, almost a mile long runway sure. and it, it's wide and we've got some instrument approaches. It's pretty typical. However, there's a lot fewer of those than there are in the lower 48. And then when you do get airports that are, say, in the smaller towns, you know, it's not the long, skinny paved runway that you're used to down there. It's going to be a gravel runway. Mm -hmm. It's going to be in the middle of a bunch of trees. It's going to be in a canyon or something or somewhere with wind. And things can get pretty tricky on people. If if not anything else than just the the psych out factor by seeing the trees as you're landing or seeing them staring them in the face as you're taking off, even though the performance profile of your airplane can handle it. So I think that's a mental barrier to get over is, is just how some of these airports look when you're landing at them mm -hmm. and the type of performance you can squeeze out of your airplane um, that, that you never had to take advantage of. You know, if, if you live in the flatland and you want to take off and you don't want to do VX or VY, you don't have to. I mean, right. you can just go to cruise speed and climb a little bit, mm -hmm. all things considered. But here, you know, you, you got to plan for that. You got to have the technique down. You've got to consider how the wind is moving around the trees. And so that was one thing. I think the biggest thing that pilots need to realize, and then if, if they do go and they do the off airport circle landing, all those same considerations need to be made, except now there is an unimproved space they're landing on. What kind of surface are you landing on? Is it too soft? Can your airplane handle it? Not only can you land, but can you take off? You know, a seaplane can land on a pretty dang short lake, mm -hmm. but can it take off on a short lake? So all of those wheels up here need to start turning for pilots. Um, so those are just a few things off the top of my head. I, I think just briefly the last thing, and maybe you can have follow-up questions on this, sure. is just the, the remoteness of Alaska. So even if I'm flying between where I'm at and Anchorage, which I'm just south of Anchorage, about an hour and a half flight, you get uh, you get a lot of wilderness in between here and there. And, and yeah, you can follow the road, but that's not the most efficient way all the time. But if, if you take the most direct route, man, there's no one out there. So mm -hmm. the survival aspect outside of the flying, just in case something were to go wrong, is is pretty eye opening in Alaska. So, you know, there are a lot of tools we can talk about there if you'd like. There's mm -hmm. lots of strategies. Um, and and that's just something that's a reality in Alaska as well, even though there may be pilots out there that aren't paying attention to that. Yeah. So what I'm hearing from that is if you're somebody that's used to, you know, landing on 10,000 foot, you know, 150 foot wide runways the whole time and, you know, limited wind and, you know, perfectly flat land for 200 miles around you, you know, you may want to really do your homework and, and really maybe look up, you know, somebody like Chris and, you know, give Chris a look at, you know, give him an angle of attack that comma, you know, a quick look up and give Chris a call and say, Hey, you know, maybe we can go out. You can show me what these tools are. You can show me, you know, how to be a safe pilot out here. Give me some, uh, obviously, you know, Chris isn't going to make you uh, a 20,000, you know, hour bush pilot in, you know, an hour and a half lesson. But, um, but, you know, at least sometimes at least knowing what to be worried about um, <laughs> to stay away from, you know, is, right, is sometimes exactly. all you need. Um, just out of curiosity. So that camera system, I had never heard of that before. 
So where do you get access to that? How do you see that? Is it a you website? Literally, it's an FAA. It's an FAA program. You literally search AKWX cams in Google and it'll pop up the website. It's a really simple uh, user interface. It's a map. It has all the different kind of buttons that you can click on for the different airports. Generally, the airports have three or four angles for the different directions, mm-hmm. um, whether that be actual like Cardinal North and Southeast West. But um, yeah, they're they're fantastic. It's one of the best planning tools, even for our trip that we're going to be taking here in the next several days. It, it's 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 instrumental in determining the weather because we just don't have the weather systems that you guys do down south. We don't have we don't have the population that kind of demands to know that tomorrow's going to be a good weather day. You know what I mean? It's, Mm -hmm. we don't have all that stuff. There's just too much unpredictability. So, um, so yeah, very good tool. Uh, I, I would love to see the FAA have it everywhere. I think it makes sense for every state that I can think of. Um, and yeah, uh, you know, just another, another service while we're talking about services that is in Alaska that isn't anywhere else is flight service. Mm Mm-hmm in an actual FAA position at an airport and they're giving, they're giving weather advisories and traffic advisories. So it's actually a lot like Canada where in some cases you have someone sitting on the airport, they're not an air traffic controller, but they are on the radio and they can help you with opening and closing flight plans, coordinating mm-hmm. IFR, uh, traffic, weather, all those things. But they are, they actually, can look out the window and do that. Alaska is the last state to have that. And it's a pretty, pretty nice service to have. We have one here at Homer. So instead of Homer traffic around here, mm-hmm. it's Homer radio, at least to start when you want to talk to them. And uh, that's a different tool that we have too. So, you know, we might have a lack of, of the, the weather technology infrastructure here, but then we have things like the weather cameras and the flight service that can help us make up for it, or at least start mm-hmm. to build some safety on that side. Just out of curiosity, so, I mean, so the weather, so these weather cameras actually sound, it almost seems to me like a ground-based self-service pyrup, right? Like, you, you know, you go yep. and see what it is. Obviously, it doesn't help you with forecasting. Um, you know, you can go, well, if you know the winds are kind of going this way, you know, you can look at the cameras yep. along that way to see what's coming your way. So that's helpful. Um, yeah, and, and where it helps a lot of pilots is in these mountain passes where, where the difference between 4,000 feet and 4,500 feet is a right. big difference. Mm-hmm. And they can actually look at the camera and see that it's open rather than the forecast, um, which is in at, you know, inherently mm-hmm. inaccurate and, and fallible and the lack of a METAR anywhere nearby. So yeah, there's just, there's a handful of things in situations where they're just really, really helpful. That's cool. That's cool. Hey, before we, I want to talk about you, but before we do, I have one really oddball, weird question. Okay. okay. I haven't talked to anybody else about this, but I was reading one of the, the the FAA magazines and it it, it popped up. It was actually an article from like 2012. Um, but it got me thinking, I'm like, I wonder what, you know, some of the folks think about this. So just out of curiosity, where you are today, because Alaska is probably more expensive. What do you pay for a gallon of Avgas, give or take? It's six dollars here at the airport. I think yeah. it might be six fifty. My airplane takes MoGas, and so that's what I'm doing. But it is about six to six fifty where I'm at. And MoGas for people that aren't listening is just regular motor, you know, car regular gas, car yeah. gas. 
Yeah, which because it's probably easier to get that. So, so what I saw was uh, Cessna. Um, I don't even know how popular these are. That they um, they have the new the newer Cessnas, and they're they think that Avgas needs to go away, and so mm. the, some of the new Cessnas are jet fuel. They use jet A. Oh yeah, the turbo diesels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're using diesel. Um, and so the cost. I just checked it out. The cost of diesel. Is a dollar at least here? Um, it was a dollar and seventy-five a gallon. Wow! And Avgas—that's pretty cheap, right? Right. But that's what what I said it was. I checked uh, just local before it came yeah. on. And um, and Avgas, depending on where you are, you know, flying around here, it's anywhere from four dollars and fifty cents to seven dollars, give or take. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I was like, you know, man, I'm like, if they really, if the airplane doesn't cost a lot more money. I'm, and if they can make those engines, and they, it was a, a 2400 uh, TBO as opposed to 2000, so the engine lasts a little bit longer. It you know it costs less than half, you know almost a third of the cost to actually fly it. Um, right. I'm really surprised we're not seeing when people are overhauling their engines that they're not like they're not doing that. I haven't heard a ton. I that was an article from 2012. I haven't heard anybody talk about that. But have you ever yeah, heard that? Yeah, it, it's a tricky. I think it's a tricky problem because there's such a, a big infrastructure for the current systems the way they are that I think it's hard to convince at least it's not going to happen quickly. It's hard mm-hmm. to convince owners to switch to that system because from my very limited technical understanding, they've got to not only have the engine, but they've got to have the FADEX system to go with right. it. There's probably a difference in the fuel lines and a difference in the fuel tanks. There's, I bet... I bet it's throughout the entire system, but yeah, I, I've flown actually one of those diesel 172s before, and mm-hmm. it was amazing. Is 5.5 gallons an hour? Right, that's your thing. It's a lot less or, gallon, or whatever they call it. And it's a push button start, so yep. you don't control the mixture yourself. It's all it's all under a FADEX system that does it by itself. So it's, it's you know you don't have to do a mag drop check. Right. There's like all these things that are just really different about it, but but also safer. And yeah, like to your point, it, it would make sense for that to be more prevalent. But but honestly, I can think of other things too, like a, a full-on small turbine engine for for an airplane, you know? Why, yeah. Like why on my 172 can I have a little tiny turbine engine that, <laughs> geez, for, for half the size of the block, it puts out twice the horsepower. Right. Um, and it probably, I mean, eventually it's going to come down to money and availability and, and uh, supply and demand, right? right. But yeah. Yeah, it'll be, be interesting perfect. though to see. You're right though about this, you know, um, like if you know, these smaller airports, you know, if they only have, they're not long enough to support a jet. So they don't get, you know, they don't get the jet A fuel type aircraft there. They only get the general aviation people. And then it's like, oh, they, yep. they may only have one, you know, one container to hold fuel. So they use Avgas. Um, so I don't know. I think it, yep. that's that's going to be, I, I really hope, I know you're going to Oshkosh now, but I really hope, you know, Oshkosh happens this year. I think it will. I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping. Um, I, I think it will in one capacity or another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we'll see. It's, it's up to them. Yeah, right. I'm keeping a close eye on that. Not that they care about my opinion, but <laughs> I hope, yeah. that, I hope yeah. that they do. Um, yeah, I want to say if, if they do, I want to go there. I want to talk to Cessna. Uh, Cessna, if you're listening, call me. I want to see what's going on with this uh, this thing. This seems like that'd be a, well, like you said, five and a half gallons an hour, as opposed to yep. eight, nine, ten, and the fuel now, is half to a third. That was the model I was flying. It, it wasn't. It wasn't a factory model from Cessna. Mm-hmm. It was a. Uh, it was a retrofit of some kind. But their their models are much the same. But um, you know, 
continuing the story forward, it was last year or the year before that they discontinued those diesel 172s. So mm-hmm. they're not doing it anymore. They're not oh, even they're making not. them anymore. Oh, I yeah. wonder if they had problems with it somewhere along the line. But um, I don't. I don't think so. I think it's just. I don't know. They just weird demand. don't want them. <laughs> People yeah, don't want demand. them. I, they are now. They are very popular in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the diesel engines. You know that that's been a thing in Europe forever. I mean, they still have, you know, the Volkswagen turbo diesels that they're selling like crazy over there still, and and they're definitely more open to diesel engines and in, in uh, like single engine pistons. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I maybe, think that that'll be an interesting thing to watch. Yeah, I think that'll be something an interesting thing to watch over the next decade or so, um, because you know your per hour of flight, like the cost of your airplane, the hangar costs, those are all fixed costs. Your insurance costs. You know, the big right. the big expense for us variably is the fuel. You know, and that's really drives how many hours we fly is the cost of that fuel yeah. for most general aviation people. Um, yeah, my, an encouraging thing, honestly, is is what Elon Musk is doing with Tesla. Imagine mm-hmm. if. Imagine if we can only get a fraction of that technology in general aviation and have have like a four or five hour endurance in, mm-hmm. you know, the, the same kind of endurance we have in airplanes now, but at a lightweight, because that's kind of the battery weight is the, the issue. Battery is the thing, yeah, that weight. So imagine we could get electric engines. I would be all on board. I mean, yeah, they keep working on them. I mean, they, you know, Elon Musk is going to push it because of the battery I know, technology you, you know eventually it's got to get to that point and mm-hmm. then and then we go through the reliability proving of all that stuff and we do I'm that i think we get to that be... i think we'll all be running two engine multi-fan or um uh, turbo fans you know if we go electric yeah. I, know, I think the propeller will be a thing of the past if we get to electric but yeah um hey while we've got you for a few more minutes i wanted to switch gears a little bit so um i want to talk about your ground school that you started so, so there's so much, you know, it used to be, you know, a long time ago, right? Probably when you and I first started flying, right? The only way you got your video, you know, information was John and Martha King, right? Who uh, were on your, yeah. Who were on your podcast. Yeah. Right? They were just on the podcast and, um, and yeah. you know, and, and you, you learn to live and grow up with the same corny jokes because you watch the same video, you know, 10 times over. Um, and oh, by the way, uh, Martha, um, I don't remember when she did this, but she actually just joined, uh, for anybody watching this from Civil Air Patrol, she actually just joined our board of governors. Um, so they're they're very, especially Martha, they're very heavily invested in, in Civil Air Patrol, which is, which is great to have their support. But, but they were like the only game in town. And then, so all of a sudden, now you get YouTube, you get the cloud, you get all this capability to push video content. Um, and now all of a sudden you've got a ton of content out there, but it's really usually disjointed. Like you really can't, like it's good for education, right. you know, for entertainment, a right. little bit of education, you know, but entertainment mostly. So, you right. know, folks like you, you know, you're trying to take that medium and you're trying to turn it into something people can really use. So uh, I probably answered your question. <laughs> I already talked too much, but, um, but w- how did you, why did you start? Um, angle of attack that ground school what was the need that you saw and what are you trying to do with it yeah it, it's actually a little bit of a varied history there because I started my business um, as a flight simulator business back in the day so when I was a teenager and I know a lot of your your listeners in civil air patrol are when I was a teenager I had a flight simulator that's how I I learned a lot about flying I'd even be with online ATC and I do instrument flying and all sorts of stuff and I started on simulators, but while I was in high school and just a general passion I had as a kid was video work. So 
Mm-hmm. That was kind of my my thing is I did video. I did it from the time I was 10 years old, you know, making videos with Lincoln Logs up until, you know, my senior year in high school making videos for all the sports teams. And then from there, it lay dormant for a while because then I got into my pilot training and and started that whole process. But then one day I said, hey, I'm going to put the two together and I'm just going to make some some courses for flight simulator because there are a lot of people that are flying these simulators that have no idea what to do. So mm-hmm. I'd use the imagery from that and create the products and do the voiceover and all that. So that's how I started. Um, did that for a number of years and then decided to to go professional, if you want to say it that way, where I started to talk to airlines and um, and other manufacturers and things to see if they had any video needs that they could they could have fulfilled by my services. And I ended up getting a contract with Cirrus Aircraft. Cool. I did their, um, I did their vision jet training, their online curriculum for their vision jet over a few years and got, got pretty burnt out. Even in that one instance with the corporate world, it's, it's very different for a small town Alaskan. And I was, I was missing, I was missing the flying. I was missing flying with people. I was missing, the one-on-one interaction with people where I could see their journey and help them. So my next step as the business was creating my own flight school and doing the online ground school. And through that process, I also uh, got my advanced ratings, so commercial uh, CFI and CFII. Mm-hmm. And, and again, you know, pivoted the business and did online ground school because I feel like, you know, with my – 10-ish years of experience at that point, I I could do it in a different way that was compelling and I could do it from the perspective of Alaska where a lot of our flying is very visceral and real and lots of lessons learned that are kind of like right there in your face. Um, so yeah, I, that's uh, that's kind of what I've put together. Um, I think it's gone, it's gone pretty well. Uh, I'd definitely like to see it grow and, and have more students and create better products and do more courses and mm-hmm that's a lifelong pursuit, but, um, yeah, it, it, you know, there's such a, there's such a golden age in aviation training right now. I think the people that are going through it don't realize it, Right. but regardless of where you get your training, there's just so much, there's so much good information out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, I want to talk for a second eventually about the bad information, but there is a lot of good information out there. The the Kings, I took courses through the Kings. They pioneered the industry right. in a time when we didn't have the internet. And and they are fantastic teachers until this day. They are just such great people and they do so much for the community. I, I can't say the exact same thing for all the people that do the online ground schools out there, but um, you know, they just have my utmost respect and and I think that they've done such a great job and and I I honor them for that. Now, with that kind of renaissance in aviation training right now we're going through, mainly because of social media and YouTube and mm-hmm. and all of these things, there is also some bad information out there. And so you kind of started off talking about how a lot of this information can be disjointed. And, and that's, you know, that in and of itself is a problem. But then there's also the dangerous information out there. And so, mm-hmm. I don't know, we could get into we could get into a discussion about this if you want, but some of the things I see coming through YouTube do concern me because there are people watching and it's very important to set the stage correctly when someone is going through training. 
I feel like one of my lifelong challenges as a teacher is to instill a safe mindset and a safe set of decision-making tools into a student. And I'm really not sure how to do that yet, especially with each individual person's, you know, life history. Um, Mm -hmm. How do you make a person be safe? And can you really? But we definitely don't want to work against them. So, you know, I've seen videos like, like people proving and showing that the impossible turn can be done. Right. um, Which for the right for the right person that's trained really aerobatically, it can, I'm not saying it can't be done, mm-hmm. but should we be putting that on YouTube in the perspective that it can be done without talking for half the video about why it shouldn't be done? Right. Um, I've seen stuff like that. And then with a lot of the, the YouTube influencers and things you see out there, not all of them do this. And I, you know, I don't want to name names nor, nor, uh, calling you out for it, but there are a, a handful of people that do very risky things and make it seem normal. Right. And, and that concerns me as well. So it's really the safety aspect of everything that concerns me. You know, the reason why people buy my ground school is because, uh, you know, answers to that issue that they, they don't want to see disjointed stuff. Like they're mm-hmm. tired of hunting around on YouTube and they, they know they just need the full package. So that's why people end up actually paying for something but then there's the flip side of that where we got to be really careful about who we trust and who we learn from in aviation. I would say 80, 90% of people are going to be great and have that great mindset. But then there's that 10 to 20% where it's, you know, it's not the best information and it's, it's, it's not safe. So yeah. Cause, yeah, cause people are going to go out whole, there. It's own podcast. Yeah, no, it totally is, man. It could be its own series of podcasts. Um, right, right. Yeah, because the thing is, is like you get the folks. Um, I, I'm just, I know. I, I just want to drop a name so bad, but I don't want to say the name. Um, I'm gonna say it. It's my thing. <laughs> so, so if you look at like say Trent Palmer, right? So, okay. so Trent Palmer. I'll say the name. So Trent Palmer has an unbelievably great skill set behind his airplane. He knows how to control the energy of that airplane so precisely that what he is doing is not the same risk as it would be if I did it. I do, right. I wouldn't have the control of energy on the airplane. And so if I wanted to do, you know, um, I don't even know what the formal term is. You know, you slide your, your tire on the, on the water. I know he got in trouble for that recently too, but for the FIA. Water skiing. Yeah, what, water skiing. They yeah, water, water skiing. skiing. Um, you know, when he does it, he's got the experience. Right. Um, he knows his airplane in and out. He knows the power. He knows the energy of it. Um, you know, yeah, he's making it look fun. And he's making it look like, you know, it's haphazard. But the dude is a monster pilot. Um, right. And right. so for him, it's not as scary. It's not as risky as it may be for, say, maybe you or me to try that. And, and the challenge is, and Trent does a really good job too on his videos, he, you know, of doing the disclaimers don't try this at home kind of thing. Um, right. But the challenge is that we get people out there who the ignore the, you know, they, they want to be the next, you know, person on Instagram, right? So they, um, I don't know if you follow the folks over on, um, oh shoot, I'm sorry. Um, I forgot the, the name of the channel. Um, oh shoot, 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 shoot. In the Hanger. No, In the Hanger is his uh, podcast show. Um, I have his t- t- shirt too. I just talked. Anyways, um, one of the people there is, uh, Christy Wong. Um, okay. and a uh, taking off, taking off as a channel. And, oh, right, um, right. Yeah. and so Chrissy Wong, um, she has a Piper and she rents it out to a flight school. 
and she somebody somewhere found a picture of her plane being flown by somebody upside down <laughs> so, oh wow yeah and you know <laughs> a piper um you know so Jeez. so you know now they have to tear the airplane apart because they're worried about you know stress and you know it's, it's it was a relatively new pilot you know so he's not no aerobatics training you know so he could have overstressed the airplane um so yeah i mean so we do have to be careful you know what we put out there on youtube because somebody's going to go out there and and try it um because they want to yeah they want to get popular yeah and trent trent's a really good example i've flown with trent i did mm -hmm. I went to Oshkosh with them one year, and um, he has an interesting background where he flew drones before he flew, but mm -hmm. then he had some really good mentors that taught him how to fly, uh, especially how to fly bush in his uh, in his kit fox. So mm -hmm. you're absolutely right in the sense that that Trent um, that Trent has the skills, and a, a friend and I were talking about this, or, or rather, it, it's like a, a continuing source of discussion. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people like Trent, um, and, and even in his group, they fly pretty close to the edge and right. this isn't calling them out at all. I want to be very clear at that. No, we love this. these guys. It, Those it, guys are great. Yeah. Yeah. They're great people too. They're not even they fly close to the edge. Yeah. It's something that most people shouldn't do. But those guys are gaining more skills because right. they are close to the edge. But as regular everyday pilots, we need to ask ourselves, you know, how close to the edge do you need to fly in, in a stock 172? Right. And I, I ask myself this all the time. I'm, I've got these tires on the plane that make it look beastly and it looks like it mm -hmm. can, you know, land on beaches and people ask me that all the time. It's like, well, no, not really. It's underpowered and right. it's stock and the engine's old. And, you know, I have a lot of reasons why not. Um, you know, all that said, there there is the calculated risk of doing certain things like this last summer, and I have a YouTube video on this. This last summer, we flew across the inlet here and we went clamming. So mm -hmm. the tides went out and revealed the ocean floor on these very long, uh, you know, I wouldn't even call them mud, but sand sand airstrips, if you mm -hmm. want to call them that. But they're they're almost always underwater. And it reveals it for like half a day and you can go there and it's like a very abundant clamming ground. So mm -hmm. we actually flew the 172 with three people and we went and landed on, on the ocean floor. And it was um, hard enough. It didn't, uh, it didn't sink you. It was very hard. Yep. It was That's very cool. hard. Um, what, what was really helpful was there is a, there was a beaver on the ground. Well, first of all, we knew that a lot of pilots did this when this happened, but there was a beaver on the ground that was talking to us and telling us some of the cues on what to look for for a good landing spot. Like, hey, actually, you know, the stuff that looks like it's a little bit wetter, mm -hmm. that's the best spot to land on because that's harder. Not a lot of people know that about beaches. Mm -hmm. um, so land on the wetter stuff. And then uh, you drag the you drag your landing location before you actually commit. So they do this in, in ski flying, too you you drag and make sure that you're not going to sink and you make sure how how firm your landing location is yep. before you commit and put the full weight of the wheels down so we did one of those had plenty of room and went and had an absolute blast and so you know that was like that was very flat it was very long it was very firm we went through our homework we even tested it uh we were we were ready and had enough fuel to return home if we had to if it didn't work out so we mitigated the risk there and had an adventure that not a lot of people get to have. But, you know, the, 
the people like Trent that are, are showing the very cool recreational bush pilot mm-hmm. flying side of it, those guys are very skilled. And I'm not worried. Honestly, I'm not very worried about them. I think for the most part, those guys are doing a great job of getting people excited about aviation again. Absolutely. You know, Trent yep. Palmer and how cool Freedom Fox looks. Yep. Um, uh, Mike Patey from an engineering perspective and just making the beastliest airplanes that have been made in decades. Yeah, I'm, I'm in awe and, of that uh, project. Yep, exactly. But it's the videos that kind of shouldn't be made that are worrying me, like the impossible turn stuff, Mm -hmm. the uh, the flying in mountains at night, low level, the flying over water without gliding distance. That's the stuff that gives me the willies because Mm -hmm. there there aren't any there aren't any egress options. You can't get out of that if something goes wrong. And it we don't need to be teaching people that. Yeah, because again, especially, you know, going back to the skill thing, right? So, you know, some of these folks that are landing in the bush locations, they didn't do that all of a sudden one day in the snap of a finger. You know, yep. they they got better and better and better over time. Um, so, you know, if you're one of my cadets, you know, you're 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 16, 17, you know, you got you're just getting your pilot's license now. Give yourself time to learn. Also, you know, we talk about risk. Um, this is actually a good conversation. I wasn't planning on going here, but this is a good conversation. So, yeah, you know, we talk like about it. risk. If you're somebody that you're looking to fly in the airlines, when you go for your interview, every answer that you have <laughs> that they're going to, you know, every question they're going to ask you, you need to come across with your answer about how you're going to manage risk um, because they don't want you doing anything in an airline that, um, that in- induces risk. So, you know, um, if they get even an ounce, oh, by the way, it's like, if you have a video on your YouTube channel or Instagram or something of you doing something risky in an airplane, you might want to get rid of that before you have your airline interview. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I, I, I know very good bush pilots who have done that, like very skilled bush pilots. mm -hmm. So, um, rub everything. Yeah, I just scrub it. Yeah, because <laughs> you don't want the airline to do anything risky. Um, yep. So even if you're good at it, even if you know what you're doing and it's not risky to you, um, you just don't even want to have that look. So let me ask you one question. I know we're running out of time here, but um, well, uh, no you, worries about it. Yeah. Okay, sweet. Um, now I know that uh, you know you being. How long have you been a CFI for now? Uh, four years. Okay, so you're still a relatively new CFI. So yeah. what what have you learned? Because um, I have so many of my listeners that are uh, and watchers that are you know student pilots or want to be student pilots. But I also have a lot of people that are have gotten their private uh, licenses and are contemplating their commercial and their CFI. Um, so for your C, when you got your CFI, what have you really learned? Like being a CFI, like how much better has a, being a CFI made you personally as a pilot? So not you teaching your students, but what have your students taught you? Mm. Yeah, it. I feel like I I had quite a few hours when I when I finally became a CFI and mm-hmm. have been an educator for many years. So it wasn't it wasn't a very big paradigm shift in the sense of educating people and and flying. But uh, I would say I would say the the biggest thing that keeps coming up for me in everything I do, my own personal journey as a pilot my professional journey as an instructor and an educator and, and also someone that just wants to see people be safe in aviation is, is just the, the consciousness of self, I suppose, Mm -hmm. and how we as fallible human beings show up in the cockpit. Mm -hmm. And 
and not only that on like a micro scale, but when you're learning to become a pilot, how do we, how do we go through this, this paradigm shift or this decision that we are going to be, that I am going to be, you are going to be mm-hmm. a safe pilot and, and decide that, Hey, I am going to be the safety guy. I am going to be the guy that, that does not do VMC and the IMC. I am going to be the guy, the guy that doesn't do CFIT. And we have to be really careful that we don't just point fingers at everyone and say, Oh, that, that guy had the dumbest accident I've ever seen. He should have never been there and, and done this and that. I really try myself to come from a place of humility and say, okay, let me start with the assumption that I am that guy and I did get down the road to that decision. Mm-hmm. What sort of thing for me would lead me there? And and if you fly long enough, you you realize that there are times as a pilot, especially when you get some experience and confidence, that you can push yourself too much. Mm-hmm. And there becomes a time when um, – when in these accidents, a lot of these accidents that happen, very skilled, experienced pilots end up finally catching up to the to the unsafe decisions or the unsafe practices that they've had for many years. So whether that's pushing low weather or um, or flying over water without gliding distance, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the list is long. Um, it seems that eventually most of the fatal accidents that can be explained are those that it caught up to the pilot finally. So mm-hmm. for me, I'm always asking myself the question for my personal journey, how can I how can I stop those chain of events when they're happening when I'm in a flight and then how can I I stop a progression in my personality and character as a professional aviator to make sure that I don't get overconfident that I that I continue to make the safe choices time after time after time, no matter how frustrating they are, no matter how inconvenient they are. Mm-hmm. I, I think that is the mark of a good aviator. It's not the guy that is on, you know, YouTube doing the amazing off airport landings or mm-hmm. the guy that is, um, you know, doing these immensely long cross countries. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me of this, of this pet peeve of mine in aviation where you have this massive, you know, trans Atlantic flight and, mm-hmm. and the pilot comes in and he slams it down on the runway and everyone's like, Oh my gosh, that guy, <laughs> he really, he really slammed it in. It's like, he that just guy is tired. safely across the ocean <laughs> through yeah. icing and all the, you know, yeah. all this stuff, no communication. So Yeah you know, one little microscope on that thing when really the body of a pilot, the the character of a pilot should be that safe aviator. Mm-hmm. That's what I want for me. That's what I want for my students. I'm still trying to figure out how to do that. Um, I'm not convinced you can change human nature, right. but I can sure come up with lessons and experiences and tools and videos to try to drive that point home mm-hmm. and be part of the solution rather than the problem. I almost wonder if the YouTube, some of the stuff that we see on YouTube that we don't agree with, I'm almost wondering if some of those are also good teachable moments. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm sorry to my family for saying this, but you know, some of the best things I learned about being how to be a good dad was watching my, my father not do it. So, uh, yeah. uh, but, but, um, you know, but, but so I almost wonder like, you know, sometimes you, you, the chant, you know, you don't want to make all the mistakes yourself, you know? So sometimes you can find some right. of these videos and say, okay, now what did that person do wrong? You know, <laughs> what would you not want to do there? It, 
and what I'm worried about, because here's one thing I know about. Just, let me put my YouTuber hat on, okay? Yeah, yeah. One thing I know about being a YouTuber is that the audiences don't always cross over. So my right. fans and the people that watch my video and like my content don't necessarily like the content or really follow religiously other people's content. So mm -hmm. what I get worried about is that people get one perspective and they don't see the safe side of flying and rather they are a big fan of that one person. Mm -hmm. They watch every single video they do and they just think they are a great pilot and they, mm -hmm. they can't do anything wrong. That's the part that worries me right. because there, you know, there's several, I would, it's not even the majority, but there are several people out there that do hazardous things while they're flying. And it's, it's unfortunate because I don't want their super fans mm -hmm. to think that that is normal and model their behavior after it, because that's not, that's not the mark of a good aviator. Right, right. Yeah, so if you're watching some of that stuff and if you're a new pilot, just remember that uh, a lot of those folks that are doing that are highly trained. Um, mm -hmm. You know, some of them aren't and some of them are taking risks that hopefully won't catch up to them, but it might. Um, but many of those folks that are doing some of that work, they, they, they just know exactly the limits of what that airplane can do. Um, they're constantly you know, budding right next to it. So where, you know, somebody like me would be like horrified and scared, you know, crazy in their airplane, they know what that airplane does. Um, and so they know that if they do certain things, they know how it's going to react. Um, and mm -hmm. you know, to somebody else. So, you know, so just keep that in mind. If some, you're somebody out there, uh, you know, you know, if somebody says on their video, don't try us at home you might not want to try it at home. <laughs> so, um, you and, know. and then keep in mind that on, on very rare, but you know, has happened occasions, there are videos out there that are just plain dangerous and, yeah. and bad information. So if, if your alarms are going off, there's probably something that's not quite right. Yeah. Or, or it might be along the lines of what you're talking about where that person has built the skills to actually do something like that. Right. Yeah. It's almost like, uh, it's almost like if you watch the movies, you know, somebody, you know, somebody's got a stunt double, you know, the, the stunt actors, Yep. you know, um, yep. even the stunt actors will break their legs sometimes. So you just gotta be careful. Oh, man, they get messed up. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Hey, listen, so I think that was about it. Um, so like I said, I'm going to throw a link, uh, down below to your channel and, um, to your ground school, to your, your website. Do you have anything else on social media? You know, you guys on YouTube, you guys are everywhere. So you've got your YouTube, you've got your, um, uh, your website, your ground school, where else can people find you? I think probably my main place is Instagram, okay. uh, Instagram, YouTube. Those are my top two. If we have some TikTokers, I've got a TikTok. You okay. guys can check that out. Um, I don't really do Twitter anymore. Facebook, you'll see the same stuff on Facebook that you do on Instagram. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm everywhere to search angle of attack, regardless okay. of what platform you are on. And there's going to be material there. Sweet. And I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll, I'll do that searching for the folks as well. And I'll go ahead and throw all those links uh, down below. So Chris, Perfect. I think that's it. I want to thank you very much for your time tonight. Um, oh, you know, it's wonderful to meet you virtually. Hopefully sometime we'll get a chance to meet and, you know, maybe go flying in real life. Maybe I'll come up during summer I would love that. and, uh, you know, have yep. you teach me how to fly around Alaska. I would, I think that'd be so much fun. So, and then we awesome. could share the cameras. We could have cameras from m more angles than normal. With all the GoPros. Yes. <laughs> Yes, we can have them all over the plane. We well, 360. Really. <laughs> 360. Also a safety issue. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, Chris, anything else for the, the folks listening that you want to tell them about? 
I would just say, hey, from like a motivational standpoint, if you have a dream to fly and uh, and you want to do it, whether that be military or civil aviation, take the next step. Keep taking those little tiny baby steps to get to that goal. Get some good people on your side. Bob, your podcast is amazing and you're doing great things with it. Thank you. And, uh, and just find find those sources that can continue to give yourself, give you inspiration, you know, whether that be YouTube videos, Bob's podcast or other great podcasts, and then putting in the work and taking the actual steps to get there. I can say from my perspective, I start, I, I really got turned on the aviation, always loved it, but, but really turned on to it when I was about 16, 17. Mm-hmm. And I knew right away that's what I was going to do with my life. And I did not let anything get in the way. And, and here I am in Alaska in a small town. I've kind of built my dream the American dream, if you will, the mm-hmm. Alaskan dream. And whatever your dream is, with enough hard work, you can do that too. So I just encourage all of your your uh, aspiring aviator listeners out there or or your uh, old-time aviators that want to improve their skills to go out and do it and, and start taking practical steps to make it happen. Awesome, man. I can't, uh, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't say it better. So I'm not even going to try. Um, great. Th- that, that was a great way to end. Um, and so with that, Chris, uh, again, thank you very much for your time. Um, I'm always impressed, you know, this is, this is new for us here, you know, civil air patrol trying to do these podcast things. So I'm always really impressed when I email somebody and they actually email me back. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, <laughs> man, no, you know, and, and that's another part of aviation again, for you, for you aspiring aviators, we've all been there. We, we've had people help us along. And right. so. I, I love to give back. I love uh, I love being on people's shows. There are many people that I didn't think would be on my podcast, so it's almost always a yes unless I'm flying across Canada or something like I'm about to do. That's you know that's a different situation. Even then, hey, I got cell coverage. Maybe we can podcast <laughs> from, from a the plane. <laughs> you know, no, no joking aside, actually, um, there's a couple of uh, uh, YouTubers I've talked to through these podcasts. Now you're the other way, so unfortunately, wouldn't be able to do it with you. But, um, you know, that live in Florida and in Georgia and Texas and that kind of area. And we've thought about, you know, maybe doing a uh, meeting up someplace and flying, you know, the rest of the way to Oshkosh, you know, if it, it happens and then doing like, you know, an interview thing on a flight to Oshkosh. But uh, in between okay, the airplanes, you know, the prob- you know, the problem there, right? Because when you fly in the Oshkosh, if you go in as a YouTuber gaggle, oh, no. they're going to make them all park together and that's way too many tv personalities parked in the same spot <laughs> the, the minute that with the exception of like mike Beatty, you know Beatty, or you know somebody like that i don't think the rest of us can call ourselves a tv personality yeah. but yeah. um you know we're all gonna wear a shirt i'm a youtuber so, exactly uh, but it's a lot of fun you know listen you know not the the uh that they elongate it but um you know we talk about that community you know I, youtube actually has been a really fun way of helping to learn and talk to people and build that community. Uh, it's just one yep. more way. You know, it used to be you had to have everybody kind of localized and get into a hangar talk. And now, like you do this, um, you know, you know, you've got a lot of viewers, but you don't have 13 million viewers. You know, um, right, exactly. So you're you're at a great size. It's, I'm sure it's a lot of work because you're you're still pretty big. But um, but you it respond is. to the people. You respond to your community. So people are watching your videos and they respond to you. They are part of your community. And you take the time yeah, I, to talk to those folks. And that's, that's awesome. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things I always want to be a part of my community. I, I, I think it's something that 
is definitely something that defines and differentiates me from others. Uh, I would even say on the ground school level mm -hmm. is I always want to be in a position to reply. And if we don't, if we aren't in that position, then the business practices and the systems need to change in order to, to allow that conversation to happen because that is the power of the internet. Mm -hmm. That's the power of, of business these days. That's the difference between you picking a, a, a product where it's only a one way right. communication, right? And, and a product where it's like a continuous communication. Mm -hmm. So anyway, not to get into to the yeah. entrepreneur side of my brain, but um, yeah, it, it, it's really great. And I, I really, uh, I've been putting a lot of effort in the YouTube, even today, even after this call, I'm mm. going to be working on it. But, uh, it, you know, it's a great group. I think it's, it's only good for aviation, mm -hmm. not only because we talked about some of the bad, but it's been very good for aviation to to have these videos out there and for people to see the real world everyday life of pilots that are from all different parts of the country and world. It's it's been really cool to see. And then, you know, in your case, to be able to do a podcast is just mm -hmm. with great information from from, you know, great people. It's just it's valuable. You know, it's, it's got value that I did not have that when I started, I was just taking everyone at their word and not getting different perspectives. So, you know, those that are out there listening, watching, gobble it up, you know, uh, Chris take Palmer, ball, run with it, do something with it. Yeah, man. So, you know, so Chris Palmer, you are now part of the value proposition of the internet. So, so <laughs> there you go. So you, yep. you are making, you are making aviation better one video at a time. Um, so, Jeez. so Chris, thank you so much. And, um, we will, uh, Chris, I'll come back to you as soon as I'm done. Um, kind of doing the little outro thing here. And, um, okay. so good. I'll be right back. Hang on. <laughs> All right. Well, that was our time with uh, Chris Palmer. He's making me laugh in the background cause he's doing stuff off, off screen that you guys can't see. I should probably swing back so you guys can see it. Um, but uh, I really want to thank him again. Um, you know, he's just a fantastic dude. Um, really down to earth. Um, you're going to find that with uh, a lot of our aviation community. Um, you know, everybody thinks of, you know, the, the, the stiffly, you know, people that are pilots and that's really not the case, you know, in the most case, most, most of the time, People are down to earth. They want you to be safe. They want to have fun. Um, and they want they want you to do things right because that's how we literally have a freedom of the skies. The government entrusts us to follow some basic rules to keep us safe, but otherwise they let us have the sky. Um, and that is not something you see in a lot of other countries. So that is something we have to protect. Um, and, uh, and folks like Chris, you know, really help with that and really help, um, you know, aviation in general. So definitely thank you to, to Chris for joining us tonight. And again, I know I've said it a few times, but uh, go ahead and look down in the links down below, go visit uh, his YouTube, his Instagram at a bare minimum. Um, you know, the uh, YouTube algorithm definitely likes it when uh, people that, you know, hit those subscribe buttons and those likes. So, you know, go to Chris's uh, channel, hit that subscribe, hit that like on his videos, leave a message for him. Uh, there's a good chance, uh, you know, you will become part of Chris's community and he'll respond back to you. Um, and so that's just awesome. So with that, uh, you know, if you guys or gals are interested in learning more about Civil Air Patrol and what we do here, you can visit us at our website, uh, GoCivilAirPatrol.com. Um, and again, if you'd like these videos, go ahead and hit the subscribe button, hit the like button. We are because COVID hopefully now is going to start weaning itself off, you know, hopefully. Um, you're gonna, There's going to be more videos in here that you're going to see the existing podcast type videos. There's also going to be some hands-on lessons 
lessons, uh, stuff that I would be teaching in the classroom for aviation, um, some hands-on stuff. We're building a wing right now. We're using uh, composite materials. Um, we're going to teach people how, gonna do, how to do that. Uh, you can follow along with us on YouTube. So if that's the stuff that you might find interesting, go ahead and hit that subscribe button, hit that bell, and uh, that's it. So that's the self-advertisement. I think we're good with that. And with that, I think everybody has a great night, and we will talk to you later. Bye, everyone.